and welcome to History Pop, where we talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. I'm your host, Courtney, and I am so excited because this podcast is going to, at least for now, finish off our, oh my gosh, seven? This is the seventh? I wish I could have ended it on six. That's why I'm calling this one six part two <laughs> of six, the musical of Henry VIII's six wives meets Spice Girls and Misery Olympics uh, competition. So uh, in this podcast, I talked uh, with one of my very dear friends, Ryan. He is a historical interpreter with the Lewis and Clark Trail and the National Park Service in Omaha, Nebraska. And he came up to watch the musical with me. And so the first half of this podcast was the first half of our conversation. (laughs) And this part is the second and last half of our conversation. We ended up talking for longer than the musical itself actually runs. So that's fun. (laughs) But anyway, I'm so excited to get to share this with you. Remember, there are no spoilers in history, but there definitely will be in this podcast. So stay tuned for more six. from all sorts of different intersectionalities. I don't know if that's necessarily the right word for it, but you know what I'm going for. I do. Uh, So I think that that is also really interesting. And also, actually, Brittany Mack, if we ever get to see her, she's really short. Oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah, she's the the normal Anna of Cleves actress. But, yeah, she's actually really short. Um, And she said uh, in the Q&A that Gary Coleman is one of her inspirations. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yep. Um, but yeah, and so we have this incredible energy that comes from these women as well. And that's another thing, too, that I really appreciated was the fact that all of the people on the stage were women. Yes. And that's something that you don't normally get. Like, studies show that uh, people, when they're looking at movies or other things like that, that if there is, I think, 30% of the screen is the tipping point. I think if 30% so. of the people on the screen are women, then, then it feels like it's overwhelmingly women because of just how often we see men in on the screen. Yes. And how we don't often see women. And so to have the entire show be entirely women is huge. Mm-hmm. So actually thinking back, uh, when you brought up the Hamilton comparison, yes. so would you say that Hamilton, though, I mean, obviously now it is because we have this as a cultural storm with the musical, but would you say that the Hamilton story would be as much of a cultural touchstone before the musical as Henry VIII was before Six? Oh. Yes and no. Really? To be to be difficult in that sense. So, <laughs> the American Revolution. Yes, but I'm talking about Hamilton, yes. not the Revolution. Well, I think that the two are really quite inseparable. And a part of what Hamilton is trying to do... So, Hamilton, of course, is based on a biography. Uh, Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow. Thank you. Ron Chernow's biography, uh, who some would argue is less than objective. Well, that's the whole thing, too, that I've talked a bit about here as well, but also when I'm teaching, is that there is no way to be objective. That's true. Bias, you swim in bias. Bias is everywhere, so it becomes a meaningless concept. That's true. But you have to be fair. 
to the sources and be honest and true to the sources. And I'm not entirely sure if I would ascribe fairness to Mr. Chernow's biography. Uh, is he an I, academic historian or is he more of a popular historian? I would say he's more popular. I, 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 I hesitate to call him not an academic okay. because he actually does do primary research and well when i say academic i'm typically thinking trained in the academy you know i don't know we could look this up right now on our magic box on our magic box what all right so having looked it up from our magic box uh so uh yeah ron chernow's got academic credentials Mm -hmm. absolutely so and my but not as a historian. Not as a historian, yes. This Working is true. in English Lit, so he's coming at it from a very different point of view than a historian would if they've been trained in the academy. This is very true. So this I would say... Because you having the same level of education as him, mm-hmm. you did all of your work in the history department. Very true, yes. Did you take any English courses? Yes. Really? What did you take? So I took a couple of interdisciplinary ones studying the 19th century in Great Britain from both a historical and a literature perspective. So what would you say would be the differences in how you approached it in that particular course versus what you got in your history department courses? So in the history department courses, obviously there's much more of a focus on primary sources and uh, as as Peter Novak would say, that noble dream, Mm. that objectivity question of uh, taking a step back and saying, how objective is this source? And from the English perspective, it was much more an analysis of the rhetoric and how things are portrayed. So the focus isn't necessarily so much on how factual something is, but how effective it is. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I'd say Mr. Chernow's biography is very effective at communicating the importance of Alexander Hamilton to American history and to the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And Lin-Manuel Miranda's play builds on that. However, I would also say there's quite a bit of idolizing of Alexander Hamilton. Oh my goodness, yes. So, uh, to go off on one of my own tangents, (laughs) something that they don't talk about that I think really encapsulates the character of Alexander Hamilton was that Hamilton did absolutely fight in the Revolutionary War. And when I say fight, I mean he he was actually, he took part in battles. Mm-hmm. However, following the end of the war, during its course, a number of the soldiers were paid in script that was issued by the, by the Revolutionary, the Continental Congress. Mm-hmm. The problem was that script basically became worthless at war's end. And so all of these guys had been paid in cash that they couldn't really redeem anywhere. Oh, that's horrid. So Hamilton and a bunch of his fellow Wall Street associates went around buying up the script for pennies on the dollar from these veterans. Uh Uh-huh. Then... Once they'd acquired enough of it, they used their political power to get the new U.S. Congress to authorize or to to validate that script. That's so skeezy. And so they got filthy rich off this. Now, Hamilton got filthy rich in a number of ways, but that was one in particular 
that I felt was so demonstrative of the character of Alexander Hamilton that he went around to a lot of what today we would classify as disabled vets bought their life savings from them for pennies on the dollar and then used his political power to enrich himself and his fellow banking compatriots and that doesn't come up in the musical no surprisingly enough that part's (laughs) left out so then do you think then six kind of idolizes or valorizes the queens oh absolutely but is it to the same damaging effect i don't think so because to a certain extent alexander hamilton's role in the american revolution has been overlooked mm-hmm. that said he's still on the ten dollar banknote mm-hmm. so he hasn't been completely erased Whereas when we're talking about the importance of women in history and the importance of women in early modern history, I really feel like it's hard to overstate, especially with how downplayed they have been throughout basically every historical text written up to and including the 20th century. Yeah, there's definitely some pieces in the 20th century that still downplay the importance of women in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have the major turn, obviously, with uh, the women's lift movement in yeah. the 60s and 70s, and we actually have the introduction and creation of women's history and women's Very studies. Very true. But yes, no, you're absolutely right. And in some ways, we still do see that as a struggle for acceptance. Uh, my own advisor, one of the things that she was talking about when she had, I think it was one of her first permanent positions, uh, another professor who had been uh, a very... Mm, not stable, what am I looking for? But uh, he was established. He came up to her and he said, so you do women's history. Do you also do real history? And of course her response should have been, well, you do, you focus on men's history. Do you also do real history? That would have been (laughs) the best response. One of those moments where you think five minutes later, God, that's exactly what I should have said in that moment. Yes. (laughs) I don't know what she actually did tell him back, but the fact that even then, you know, this was more in the 80s when this was, uh, but even today you do have some people who look down on some of these newer fields that keep popping up, because mm-hmm. my main field is royal studies and court studies. Right. And so then you do have historians and even those who are my current colleagues in grad school mm-hmm. who, you know, should supposedly have benefited from women's studies and social history and all these things that came out of the 60s and 70s thinking that my my field of history doesn't have any importance and so we do have, still have this struggle today so i think that even if we have this sort of valorization of these queens which we do get a bit of it is entirely different from what we have in hamilton because hamilton is named after one person this is very true. And we have six being six different women, different lives, spanning over half a century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know how long Hamilton was focused on in the play because I haven't seen the musical. Uh, really, uh, it goes from 1776 up to Hamilton's death not long after 1800. Okay, so, so it's, it's not that even long of a it's period. It's about a quarter of a century. All yeah. right. 
so we actually have a little bit of a longer time period that we're talking about in six then as well, which makes sense because we have six main characters mm-hmm. versus one. Yes. Um, so I think that even if we do have this idolization of some of the queens, and it does kind of still put them into some pigeonholes, even though it's trying to kind of push it back against that idea, that I think it's pr- much more beneficial than harmful. Mm-hmm. I also just have to say, I absolutely adore Hamilton the Musical. Yes, of course. And you can't not. still recommend people go see it. My only my only bit of advice is take the, the history, and I'm using air quotes there. The with a, history. Yes, with a grain of salt. Well, just like going to Six as yeah. well, though, too. Um, and actually thinking of that, then, is there a bit of history that was presented to you in the show that surprised you? Hmm. Like, what's something that you feel like you actually learned from the show that maybe you hadn't heard of from me before or something like that? Or from your own readings, because I know you also read as well. (laughs) I am, in fact, literate. Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Something I had learned from the show. You had mentioned it before, but I was surprised to hear that Anne and Henry wore yellow Mm. when Catherine of Aragon died. And I love that because that's another thing that you don't get from the soundtrack is after Anne Boleyn does her song, you know, she, they automatically assume that they each win after their own song. Right. Um, And then she's like, I'm going to go and do another song. You know, what was it called? You know, like wearing yellow. Wearing yellow to a funeral. (laughs) (laughs) Because Anne... And Henry, after Catherine of Aragon died, donned yellow. And I think I mentioned this in another podcast, but uh, they historians have later on played it off like, no, yellow was a mourning color. No, it was not. Yellow was not a mourning color in Spain. And when I say mourning, I don't mean mourning as in like the sun is coming up. I mean mourning as in like you're sad after someone dies. Yes. And M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. And... That's a period when you were black and you don't go out and you don't do all that stuff. Victoria had a very long mourning period for Prince Albert, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so Henry and Anne wore yellow <laughs> to celebrate that Catherine had died. And that's actually also something that we do get as well when she's like, she starts singing this song, you know, wearing yellow. And, you know, Catherine was a great big, and then they stop her. Yep. Um, and so it is emphasizing this rivalry between Mm -hmm. the two of them as well absolutely so wearing yellow was something that surprised you where that she not the yellow itself but that she and henry were so unabashedly gleeful at the death of henry's first wife Mm -hmm. i feel it, it surprised me that they didn't have a little bit more propriety although i think uh and you and I have talked about this, one of the things that surprised me about the musical was I came away with, I think, a lot more empathy for each of the women, Mm -hmm. with the exception of Anne Boleyn. Oh, really? Really. Uh, And something that I would like to ask you is, do you feel that the kind of cattiness that was portrayed on stage was a fair representation of Anne Boleyn's character? To be fair, we don't really know. Hmm. Um, Because as many people who read the primary sources on Anne Boleyn, there's that many interpretations. Yeah. 
Um, some people would see Anne Boleyn as this very genuine and very kind and considerate person. And I'm not saying that she wasn't. Some people would see the the catty sort of aspect about her. And I could definitely see that as well. Um, I think that from my own opinions, and once again, this is, I would not actually put these in an academic writing. Right. Because I don't have the primary sources to back me up on these. But the, from having read so many books about Anne Boleyn and the period, I have formed my own opinions of these individuals and the events that surrounded their lives and the things that they took part in. And in some ways, yeah, I think Anne was kind of catty. But I think that the show also does her a disservice because they focus on that party girl aspect, and that was an intentional choice on the part of the creators. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also giving her a very unique character to get across, once again, in 90 minutes. Yes, absolutely. And so I understand why they did it. And they say specifically that, you know, Anne has always come across as this very serious character and this very serious interpretation. And in a lot of ways, she very much so was. She was an incredibly intelligent woman. And that's not to say that you can't be intelligent and fun and bubbly. Uh, And because I think that she actually did have a lot of fun. And so I think that the party girl aspect kind of comes through in the fact that she loved dancing. She loved singing. She loved performing. And those were all things that were expected you to be able to do at these early modern courts. And so I think that the party girl aspect is an interesting one to go with. But I think that they don't really give her that much more in terms of depth. Right. And I think that, you know, they gave Kate Howard a lot of depth. They gave Catherine Parr a lot of depth. There wasn't a whole lot of depth for Catherine of Aragon. There wasn't a whole lot of depth for Jane. Hmm. She came across to me as, you know, just, I mean, you get more depth, I think, than you would normally. Uh, they were able to put a lot of for my, so interpretation for my, into Jane. Yes, I would say for my cursory reading mm-hmm. and especially compared to yours i would use the word cursory reading of the history of henry VIII and his wives jane seymour is a footnote <laughs> it except was, for the fact that she had the son she had the son and she's the one that henry wanted to be buried next to yes. if you if you put a gun to my head and said what do you know of jane seymour those are probably the two facts i could recite Yeah, and I mean, there's different things that we can kind of pull up from other primary sources as well. And I talked about in the historical background for Jane. But Jane, like Anne Boleyn, is another one of those characters that we don't know really who she was. Mm -hmm. Because we don't have that much in terms of sources as much as we do for Henry. Mm -hmm. Or other men especially at Mm -hmm. the time, or even Catherine, because Catherine was in the spotlight for a lot longer than either of them. And so we have more sources that tell us more about at least the characters that they portrayed in their roles as king or queen or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we don't have nearly as much for Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour. So their characters are a lot harder to pin down. Yeah. And so I would say that they're in both of them, there's probably a bit of that cattiness that would have been indicative of trying to survive at court. Yes. Um. And that ability to play the field, because you don't get to be at court unless you can play the game. Well, you can get to court if you don't know how to play the game, because other people would play the game for you to pull strings to get you positions at court. Mm -hmm. But you don't stay at court unless you know how to play the game. Right. And both of them stayed for years. That's something that we also don't normally get to think about, is the fact that Jane Seymour came in in the late 1520s serving Catherine of Aragon. 
Oh, did she really? Mm Mm-hmm. And so she stayed there for years. She was there for the entire time that we have the King's Great Matter and the struggle for the annulment or divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Mm -hmm. And... So you don't stay at court unless you know how to play. So obviously Jane knew how to play. And so I think that we just don't get the chance to really kind of get to know these women very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so the Anne Boleyn being the party girl, being the, the catty sort of individual that we see who is obsessed with the image and the social media, I think in some ways rings true, but mm-hmm. in other ways very much so doesn't. Okay. Um, and actually, my advisor is, is, was writing a review of Six um, to be published, and I don't remember which magazine, but her main gripe was the fact that, you know, we hear at least a mention of Catherine of Aragon's daughter, Mary. Yep. We have basically the whole idea of Jane is as a mother to Edward. Right. Um, but we have nothing about Elizabeth, Anne's daughter. Right. Well, and that's another question that I wanted to put to you. Okay. The the things for which a lot of these... I mean, when they're writing these songs, I think a lot of the, the original writers looked at what is the little tidbit, the, the, the five-second news snippet that each of these women would be remembered for. Mm-hmm. And Catherine, it's 24 years of marriage and marry. Yep. For Jean... It's Mother of Edward. For Anna, it's, you didn't look like your portrait, even though you and I have had separate conversations on that and the historical reality versus the theatrical presentation of that. For Catherine Howard, it's promiscuity and Mm -hmm. ultimately being beheaded. And for Catherine Parr, it's surviving. It's surviving. And uh, one of the things I do love is the fact that they actually do emphasize the fact that she was a writer. She was incredibly well educated. Mm -hmm. But... So Anne Boleyn, she's kind of got two. One is being the one who kicked off Henry's consecutive marriages. Mm -hmm. Being the one who actually, if not not convinced, but motivated him to divorce Catherine of Aragon. Although he actually had been having doubts about the marriage before the whole thing with Anne really kicked off. Mm -hmm. But she was the impetus to really make it happen. Right. If Anne Boleyn had not given birth to Elizabeth I, do you think she is a name that we would discuss today? Outside of explicitly listing Henry VIII's six wives. Well, that's the whole point of the show, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Without Henry, and that's the, one of the lines that's actually in Kate Parr's song, without him we disappear. And I would say yes, because there was a lot that had to do with the building of Anne Boleyn's case as a Protestant martyr during mm-hmm. Elizabeth's reign. And we have that with John Fox and the Axon Monuments or the Book of Martyrs. Um, so we have a lot of that as a built-up thing, and Anne Boleyn becomes a figure of... She's still not talked about as much as, you know, of course, Henry VIII is, but personally, Elizabeth cared a lot more for her Boleyn relatives than she did her Tudor relatives. Uh, but I would say that Anne Boleyn still would be someone we would talk about for her role in the English Reformations. 
uh, because she was the one, one of the ones who really brought in and brought to Henry's attention the Reformed teachings. Not necessarily Lutheranism, I would actually say uh, more of the kind of Calvinism that we have that Marguerite de Navarre was part of those circles for. Um, but bringing these teachings and the atten his, uh, Henry's attention to them, which was one of the main catalysts for him to be able to say, yeah, you know what, I should be head of my own church. That comes from reading these particular texts that had been banned in England before mm -hmm. that Anne brought to him. So I would say that, yeah, Anne Boleyn definitely would still be someone who we would talk about, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you were studying religion. And I think that that would be more where the focus would be uh, if we didn't have Elizabeth I to go off of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did that answer your question? Thank you, yes. <laughs> like a conference for a second there like all right did i did i actually hit all the parts of the question um so then uh taking kind of a slightly different tack mm -hmm. what's your impression of henry from all of this i've never really had a favorable impression of henry VIII. <laughs> i mean a man who put to death two of his wives is already kind of on the outs in my book mm -hmm. before getting any sort of context but henry the eighth i mean you you really can't talk about English history in a broad arc without touching on Henry VIII. In the same way that I would argue you can't really talk about Chinese history without talking about Mao Zedong. Yeah. It doesn't mean that they were a great leader or a good person, mm -hmm. but they were very important and impactful. And they had that particular moment in time. Yes where they were the one who was poised to do this and take care of this or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think that <laughs> to a certain extent, that what they did touch a bit on on Six and I really enjoyed was, yes, we only really talk about these six women because of Henry VIII, but I think to a certain extent we also only talk about Henry VIII because of these six women. Which is the moral of the story! Yeah. I mean, if to to, to, to yeah, <laughs> thank you to put in a counterfactual, if Henry and Catherine of Aragon had a son that lived to maturity, none of this would have ever happened. Right. And Henry the Eighth probably wouldn't have broken away from the Roman Church. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we still probably would have had some fights in France. Probably, but. Actually, probably even more so. That would have upset kind of the balance. Because uh, mm -hmm. England, especially Henry at this point in time, sees himself as this counterbalance between the major powers of High Kitty Cat. Hi, Kitty. What's happening? Uh, the Holy Roman Empire and France. And the Holy Roman Empire, including Spain. Uh, so we have Henry sees himself as this counterbalance between the two major powers in Europe. And so without breaking away from the church, and if he stayed married to Catherine of Aragon, it would have been much more of a natural alliance with the Holy Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, the, the break from Rome... Do not jump up. Okay. Mm, I kind of feel like maybe we should redo this bit. Why? Because there was a lot of jingling and... That's fine. Chirping. Yes, he doesn't. He's a very big chirper. He has opinions. Yes. Well, I'm sorry, Petrarch. Did you want to voice your opinions on Henry VIII, or were you doing so and we just talked over you? 
I think we talked over him. I think we did talk over him. <laughs> so I think that, yeah, I mean, Henry would have never broken from Rome mm-hmm. if he hadn't needed a divorce. Mm-hmm. And had he not broken from Rome and then gone on to divorce and murder two of his wives. Yeah. Then we would, he would, he would be a footnote in history. He would have been like Henry the sixth or Henry the fourth. No, I would say both of them kind of, kind of were parts of major things like Wars of the Roses and then usurping Richard the second's throne. But I get what you're saying. Those just weren't the best examples for it. All right. Name a Henry for me. That's not that important. Why specifically a Henry? Because his name is Henry, and there are eight of them. There's got to be another one that's not important. Uh, Come to think of it, I don't ever remember reading about Henry the First. Uh, yeah, we can go with Henry the First. Okay, there we go. That's fine. He's far I think enough he, back. I think also, if they'd had a son, he wouldn't have been the last Henry. No, he wouldn't have been. He would. There would have been Henry the Ninth. Yeah. And we have no idea what would have happened after that. And actually, there almost was a Henry the Ninth, even with all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, because James the Sixth slash First and Anna of Denmark's eldest son was Henry Frederick. Oh. So he would have been Henry the Ninth. But he died when he was 18. Sad day. Yeah. Very sad for them, actually. We could talk about that in a different podcast. Well, mm-hmm. I could talk about that in a different podcast. I don't know if you'll be back <laughs> yes. for that. So... Unfortunately, Lewis and Clark never traveled through Minnesota, so my job lies elsewhere. Yeah. Um, So then, finishing off then, uh, which was your favorite of the songs? Oh. Hi, kitty cat. I think they're very different, but the, the, the finale, I'd have to say, was absolutely fantastic. Six? Oh, yeah. Or was it the, the remix when they came back in? Oh, the remix, I meant. Oh, where they, like, combined all the songs together? Yeah. The finale. Okay. (laughs) I was just thinking in terms of the soundtrack, because that one's not on the soundtrack. Oh. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. The finale. The finale remix? Finale remix. Yeah. Uh, In other shows in England, from what I've heard at least, they actually encourage you to take your phone out and record that one. Oh, really? Yeah. But in the word way, they're like, ha ha, no. I was very much discouraged. Yeah. Lots of signs. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's one that they actually encourage you to record in other places. Not so much here. So the only way you're going to get to hear this song is if you find someone who posted it from England or if you go to the show, which I wholeheartedly recommend. Um, and then, uh, so if we were going to be putting these women in arbitrary contest with one another, who had the worst time with Henry in your opinion? Who would have won if we actually hadn't completely shifted the expectations at the end? Gotcha. So if we'd continue on with the whole patriarchal theme. Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, supporting the patriarchy. That's what we do on this podcast. Let's lean into that. (laughs) I would have to say Catherine Howard. With Henry specifically. Right. Or just, because that's, I would say her whole life. So there's, it's, for me, I would say it's definitely one of the Catherines. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Anne was actually beheaded. Yeah. But Catherine of Aragon was kept under house arrest and utterly betrayed by a man that she'd given more than half of her life to. Oh my god, yes. And forbidden from seeing her daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's 
that's a level of suffering that I think we can only imagine. But And I don't like how they play it down in the show too. Right. We're like, Oh, you almost got sent to a nunnery, but didn't Right. Instead yeah. she was kept in like a dank house. Yeah, and she got sick from it. I mean she I don't think she died from it, but definitely that aided in her death. Mm-hmm. But from the portrayal of the musical, mm-hmm. Catherine Howard. Okay. A woman of, a, a victim of repeated sexual assault, who is ultimately killed for being a victim of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So you'd say that she would have won? I think so. The Misery Olympics? Yes. <laughs> had they not flipped the script at the end of the show and were like, oh, hey, well, this is what we could have done if only we had known this the whole time. I have to say, one of my favorite breakings of the fourth wall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you? Oh, goodness. Who suffered the most? Oh. Hmm. Honestly... I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> Curses, he asked me my own question. I didn't see this eventuality. <laughs> no, I didn't. Um, but uh, I honestly would probably... See, because like, the death things obviously are huge. Yes. And tragic. And if you love your spouse, you don't have them murdered. Right. Uh, even if you are kind about it uh also like to by you know giving her a sword instead of an axe i also like to continue to employ that word murder oh yeah as for what it is because we we always dress it up as executed like because they deserved it right like she was tried in a fair court yeah when in fact when in fact as you pointed out in order for the executioner from calais to have gotten to england in time for anne's death she would he would have had to have left calais before the trial finished yeah so it that was, was a, a foregone, foregone conclusion. conclusion jinx oh my god <laughs> you owe me a coke um or ramenay mm-hmm. uh so i'm i'm not trying to downplay the fact that these two women were brutally murdered right for things they didn't do or things that were done to them right because that is absolutely tragic yes um and i wouldn't say that jane seymour her experiences were really all that horrible with henry no i mean i think it was yes she died yes but as the other ones say of natural causes Mm -hmm. and and it was tragic that a lot of women even today still die with complications of childbirth right which is horrible and hopefully we're going to get even better in medical science and fixing this sort of stuff right but that was also an expected thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's why I said, like, uh, Catherine of Aragon's older sister, Isabella, was desperately afraid of getting married because she did not want to have a child because she knew in her bones that she would die in childbirth, and she did. Um, but that was an expected thing. As much as it was very sad and yes. very upsetting, it was an expected thing. Right. So honestly, I would send, honestly, and we're not even talking about Anna of Cleves here. <laughs> Once again, kind of an awkward four-month marriage. Was it four months? About six months. Six months. Awkward yeah. Awkward half a year for yeah. her. But then she... And then she, she set li- up for the rest of her life. Then she lived out the rest of her days, especially compared 
to the general populace of the time. Yeah, she had a great time. Mm -hmm. This is another uh, factor, uh, listeners, that uh, Courtney and I often debate is she talks about, we talk about how rough it was for the royals, and I'm always the one who says, but what was the average farmer's life expectancy at this time? You know, 90% of the population. At least 90% of the population. And you're right, I need to do more in terms of the social history. Uh, and I want to, and I do try to incorporate it, at least in my teaching, whenever I can. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, a lot of pop culture works, though, don't focus on that random farmer down the street. That's true. So we're well, probably not going to get a chance to talk about them very much in the podcast. That's very true. Also, that silly farmer should have taught himself to read and write so he could have left a historical record for us to look back to. Although we actually do have more in terms of literacy in the early modern period once we do have the Reformations coming in, because that was a big mm -hmm. tenet of it, where you were supposed to be able to read the Bible yourself and kind of develop this relationship with God that way. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that we don't really have figures for, even in the medieval period, is the fact that a lot of people could read, yes, but they couldn't write. Oh. So it depends on how you define literacy. Fair point. Um, but anyway... Once again, off on a tangent. Which we do. I think we could just title this podcast Tangents. I think I might. Tangents with friends. <laughs> um, so honestly, I think Catherine of Aragon... Knew it. Because of the fact that she had so long with Henry. Mm -hmm. And... So she had, honestly, if you just think about it, the sheer amount of stuff that she had over the years to deal with, mm -hmm. she had more to deal with than any of the other queens did. Um, and, and I like how they actually do bring up the mistresses. Like, you know, he had not one, but not two, but three historically confirmed mistresses during my marriage with him. Oh, boo-hoo, mistresses. Well, how many miscarriages? And, uh... And, of course, the miscarriages weren't necessarily anything that had to do with Henry. That's true. Although, biologically, there are historical historians who are working, historical uh, medical people who are looking at... Historical medical people. Thanks uh, for bringing in my lack of being able to bring the exact right word up when I need it. Right. Um, you can count on me. Yeah, so people who, you know, are looking at the historical medical realities, and there are theories that... Uh, I'm not really all add up on the science of it, but the RH positive in terms of the blood types mm -hmm. um, and how if you have this particular, is it an enzyme? I'm not sure. I have to uh, admit at this point, dear listener, I am not a historical medical person. Thank you. Uh, I will admit I'm firmly out of my depth here. But if you have this uh, RH positive versus RH negative, if uh, one of the parents has this particular thing that goes along in the blood type, uh, the and the mother is different than the fetus that is developing, her body will attack it and kill it. Mm. And um, so there are historians who believe that, historical medical people, who believe that uh, Henry VIII then had this particular mutation or enzyme or whatever it is in his blood that made it so it was that much harder for his wives to conceive, and or rather not to conceive, but to carry to term. Yeah. Because their bodies... After the first pregnancy, because you it works fine for the first one, mm. uh, because your body doesn't have the antibodies to be able to deal with it yet, but it builds up over that first pregnancy. So any further pregnancies would uh, end in miscarriages or uh, be spontaneously aborted mm -hmm. or be stillborn. 
because the woman's body then has the antibodies to attack what it sees as an invader because it has that different enzyme on the blood type. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are historical medical people who uh, they hypothesize that this might have been what was going on because usually the wives were able to conceive fairly quickly mm-hmm. and fairly regularly, but it was very hard for them to take the child f- to full term after the first one. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I've also always disliked that term, mm. miscarriage. Yeah? Yeah, it feels loaded to me. Like, I don't know, like, Catherine of Aragon dropped the baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, her she, fault. she miscarried, oops. <laughs> yeah. When and that's I, I definitely feel not the that, not the reality. And no, and then I, and I feel like you know that it, it puts some sort of onus on the mother. Yeah, like it's it's her fault, her responsibility, right, to take care of this. Even though she's trying her hardest, usually to mm-hmm. keep this child and following the medical uh, advice of the time. Yeah, when you know she had no more control over that fetus than I did over my exploding appendix. Exactly. Um, I miscarried an appendix. <laughs> Congratulations. Ryan. Thank you. Um, but yeah, so flipping it back on me, I would say Catherine Varagon. And, you know, the miscarriages would have added to the heartache, but they wouldn't necessarily been part of the problem with Henry. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even the fact that, you know, that he froze her out, that he stripped her of her whole identity as a queen. Right. Uh, basically house, put her under house arrest, mm-hmm. uh, did threaten to send her to a nunnery. The only thing that really made her story less tragic than I think that Anne Boleyn and Kate Howards especially are portrayed as is the fact that he couldn't have her executed. Right. Because if he could, he would have. Mm-hmm. And then we would have an entirely different musical. Very true. Also rhyme. Beheaded, beheaded, <laughs> died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so if I had to pick the winner of the Misery Olympics, it would have been Catherine of Aragon. Because mm-hmm. like Catherine Parr, she had a rough go of it as well, as we see in the show too, that you know she didn't get to marry who she wanted to all the time. Uh, but that was also a reality for women at the time as well. Right. And so while it definitely sucked, mm-hmm. and it sucked hard, um, it was expected. Yeah. Basically, Tudor womanhood. Wouldn't recommend. (laughs) Definitely not given the recommendation on this one. Yeah. And so a lot of the tragedies... Oh, that's actually interesting to think about, too. A lot of the tragedies, except for, of course, the beheadings, that we see in these women's lives are just indicative of what was expected for women at the time. Mm -hmm. And so maybe then, do we want to say the biggest tragedy was just being a woman? And on that cheery note, listeners, <laughs> thank you for listening to History Pop. <laughs> oh, gosh. So I feel like I'd, I'd agree with that assessment, but that's also definitely not the note that I want to end, to end on. on. Okay. So I like to, and you know my love of counterfactuals. Yes. So, oh, do we want to talk about the counterfactuals in the song at the end? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Is that where you were actually going? Did I like get where you were leading? Yes. Yay! Congratulations. Huzzah. So I actually disagree with, uh, with um, Catherine's happy, uh, happily ever after counterfactual. Now, for, uh, I, 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 so I think uh, 
let's let's actually just do an overview for listeners before diving into them. What? So, with Catherine's... Of Aragon. Catherine of Aragon. Thank you. Yes. Once again. The least historically relevant Catherine. Two Anne's, (laughs) three Catherine's. One Jane. And a Jane. So, Catherine of Aragon's happily ever after is... Going to a nunnery. She tells Henry, no, 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 no way, and uh, goes to a nunnery. Anne Boleyn's happily ever after is... Oh, yeah. Uh, Henry wrote her the poem all about her green sleeves, mm-hmm. and she took it and put it to a sick beat, and now she writes lyrics for Shakespeare, EP, which I'm assuming is Shakespeare. Gotcha. Jane Seymour's happily ever after is... Having crap tons of kids with Henry and doing the Tudor von Trapps. Anna of Cleves, happily ever after is... Goes back to Germany, and she teaches people how to party. <laughs> that honestly sounds like my happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Howard's happily ever after is... Becoming an idol and singing and having a great time. And Catherine Parr's happily ever after. Bringing them all together to make a girl band. I like it. (laughs) So, So, yeah, of course, these are definitely inflicted with 21st century. And also the fact that they are, uh, you know, it's all about music. Right. I mean, yeah, it's a musical. I think you're not really getting away from that. Oh, and here's the thing, too. uh, Thinking, is it a musical? Technically? Because they all know they're singing. They all do know they're singing. Yes. They break the fourth wall that way a lot. Dear listener, a theatrical trope that we should talk about, or a rule of theater, is that in musicals, traditionally, the people who are singing are not really aware that they're singing. It's just a natural extension of the drama. So the musical episode in Buffy is not a musical technically not a musical because they are aware that they are singing every single night the same arrangement sorry we don't have the rights (laughs) no we don't (laughs) i cannot pay that money no i do not have the money you cannot get e-money no so i would say uh i liked i like the the counterfactual of a history for catherine in which Henry never ascends the throne because Arthur never dies. Oh, that would be so fun. Or rather, I would say Arthur dies a more timely death. Not that Arthur is like the vampire king of England (laughs) for the next 500 years. I want to suck your blood. Well, that's Elizabeth right now. That's true. (laughs) So uh, you've got uh, Arthur, because from what I've read, Arthur seemed very like a sweet guy yeah and devoted and not super likely to chop off his wife's heads when she becomes inconvenient yeah generally um at least the uh uh historical references and documents that we have that do talk about arthur as an individual uh we have he and Catherine very well matched Mm -hmm. in terms of intellectual ability and capacity and uh aptitude and interest um we have them both raised to rule in their own ways. So Catherine as a concert queen mm-hmm. and Arthur to rule as a king. He was raised from birth to be the next king. He was the heir, mm-hmm. not the spare. And so I think that definitely shifts how he understood his responsibility mm-hmm. and duty. Yes. Um, it's kind of like what we see like with Prince Charles today versus like Prince Andrew <laughs> looking at the... Uh, current controversies right now in the news Mm. uh but how prince charles from the beginning is raised to rule as much as he can in a constitutional monarchy now right 
But he knows that, and you can see this in his every action, that everything he does is for duty and for responsibility. Like marrying Diana first was for duty. Yes. Not because it was what he wanted to do. Right. And I think that he and Catherine would have been very happy with their marriage, mm-hmm. Arthur and Catherine. Yep. Um, so he wouldn't necessarily have had a Diana moment. But, I mean, I don't know if he would have had any mistresses or anything like that because that was one of those things that was, you know, acceptable for men at the time, especially men in power. Uh, but, Glad that things have changed. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think that at least from the glimmers that we got of Arthur before he died, I think he would have been a very good king. Mm-hmm. And I think he and Catherine would have been, at least had the projection of a happy marriage. Mm-hmm. For Anne's happily ever after, Anne Boleyn's happily ever after, I think she would have been pretty happy as a courtier. As a, as a duchess. Yeah. So uh, not, Or a countess not, or whatever. Yeah, ne- definitely not the, the queen, but somebody who was able to continue to play the game. Yeah, and uh, also finding ways to push the reformed religion, because I think that that was a major part of why she oh yeah definitely went to be queen once she actually learned that it was a possibility that she was going to be queen i think that that was one of her driving motivations mm-hmm. uh was to push the reformed teachings and movement okay. i can also see pairing off jane and henry again henry is the younger brother of the king yeah and that would actually make a lot of sense although jane wasn't necessarily as high up in terms of birth that would have been expected to marry into a royal family but at the same time if arthur is still around then Henry's not as an important a catch either. That's very true. Anna just stays in Cleves and parties all day long. I'm, I'm totally okay <laughs> with that one. I don't know if she actually would have partied in no. Cleves. No, Dis- like hardcore elect EDM dance party. <laughs> that is yes, Anna like Cleves. German synth pop. Exactly. Um, I think that she probably still would have made a diplomatic marriage, mm-hmm. uh, but she would have stayed on the continent, um, probably in another German duchy, mm-hmm. most likely. Um, she may have been a duchess, I mm-hmm. think would have been the highest that she would have, uh, aspired to, mm-hmm. or had other people aspire for her to. Um, and yeah, I think that at least in the Anglophonic world, she probably wouldn't have been someone people talk about. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. But I think that there would definitely be German language scholarship where she probably, you know, as a duchess would have, you know, worked to help these particular charities or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that maybe it would have been interesting to see how religion would have been impacted at that particular point in time, depending on where she was in which particular duchy, because we have... um, With the Peace of Augsburg uh, a little bit later, which was still after her lifetime, but we have this fight going on in the Holy Roman Empire between Lutheran and Catholic uh, duchies. Yes. So I think that she would have been part of that. Probably. So, so not maybe. necessarily party castle. No. That's that's a little less happy. But she would I really have... prefer my German synth pop alternate <laughs> reality. Well, you can have that. I'll have mine. All right. <laughs> Kate Howard. How about instead of a teacher that molests her (laughs) you have a teacher that teaches her a teacher that teaches her (laughs) and you know i think just changing that directory or Mm -hmm. that 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 course of her life so i think that would be really nice because yeah she probably wouldn't have married to be a duchess 
Um, but she would have definitely married in the aristocracy, mm-hmm. in the nobility. Um, and yeah, it, maybe she would have been able to find a, at least a husband who was good to her. Mm-hmm. And I hope that her life would have been better than just being able to settle for a, a man that didn't beat her excessively or that, uh, you know, didn't sleep around and make her upset and stuff like that. But I don't know. But I think she would have been just one of those, you know, countesses or um, barons' wives and would have been kind of like Anna Cleves, who would have kind of faded more into the background. Mm -hmm. And then Catherine Parr. A lot of the stuff that we would remember her for outside of Henry VIII wouldn't have happened the same way Mm -hmm. without Henry VIII especially the fact that I'm talking about as a published author. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she still would have been involved in teaching the Reformed teachings as Protestant. Um, I think that she probably wouldn't necessarily have had the social clout to be able to publish under her own name, but I think she probably actually would have published under an anonymous mm. title. Yeah. Um, so I can see her still doing that and then also i really like the idea that she she probably wouldn't have been able to have k seymour uh, <laughs> um i don't think that she would have had the same higher up uh like you know obviously royal reach but she you know had gotten to princess mary's household mm-hmm. before she married henry and so she still would have been in those royal circles mm-hmm. and so i think she still would have been able to do a lot of what she did did just not in the same way so yeah, all right. Some alternate histories, <laughs> counterfactuals, which are so much fun. I do love them, and also you know bringing in my theories uh, of absolutely absurd but still happy counterfactuals <laughs> with uh, Courtney's more realistic and slightly depressing hashtag German synth pop <laughs> versus Thirty Years War. Well, that came in the 17th century. Well, I know, but I'm trying to think of... Was there a term for the religious wars that plagued Germany in the 16th century? In the 16th century? Oh, yeah, not... Just religious conflicts. From my understanding of it. I'm, I'm not as up on the religion part as I should be. I am much more an expert on the, you know, women side of things and the royal side of things than I am on the religion side of things. So thank you for pointing out my one weakness. One weakness. The one weakness. You heard it here first, folks. (laughs) So, So, yeah, I prefer German synth pop (laughs) over probably dying in a religious war. I wouldn't say she was going to die in a religious war, but just that she would have a part in it. So, yeah, I'd go with German synth pop over fighting in religious wars. Okay, fantastic. That works. All right. Is there anything else that you want to say about the show, uh, about Six, before we sign off? It's a great show. Really, if you get a chance, go see it. You know, either in St. Paul at the Ordway or on Broadway when it starts early next year. Mm-hmm. Or tours, as I'm sure it will do. Oh, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how they get the other casts going. 
since we have actually a touring cast in the UK as well as the stable West End UK mm-hmm. uh, cast. There's also an Australian cast. Right. Well, for something that's already acclaimed this much international renowned, I think it'll probably make its way touring around the country, much like Hamilton. That's fair. That's true. I'm not throwing away my shot, so that way we can finish up this podcast now. All right. I think we're honestly going to have to break this up into two This will casts. absolutely be multiple casts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, granted, it is your podcast, and I have no right, but I would like to firmly voice my objection to having people take a two-hour onslaught of you and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just not fair. That All at to, once. That needs to be broken up. Yeah. Uh, that's fair. Yeah, so this will probably end up getting uh, pulled into two different podcasts. At depends least, on how yeah. I edit it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so thank you so much for joining us today, Rye. It has absolutely been my pleasure. Yay! Uh, let's see here. So then... Um, I'm trying to figure out still what we're going to be doing next after this, but I think I'm probably going to go into the Philippa Gregory series and looking at White Queen, White Princess, and then eventually Spanish Princess, where you get to talk more about Catherine, because I wonder if this is just going to become the Catherine of Aragon podcast. Catherine of Aragon. Ta, ta, ta. Divorced. And that's where we end. <laughs> that's it. Um... But anyway, so this has been Courtney and Ryan for History Pop signing off. It's been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Bolton and used under the Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rabbit production.